scripture this morning comes from the Gospel of Luke, starting chapter 10, verse 25. Just then, a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? What, what do you read there? He answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have given the right answer. Do this and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down the road. When he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So, likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him, and when he saw him, he was moved with pity. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him, and when I come back, I will repay you whatever more you spend. Which of these three, do you think, was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. The road was treacherous going from the tall spires of campus down towards the shabby mall The lack of stoplights and stop signs made it a popular cut-through for drivers trying to cut off time on their travels. You see, that road, it, it wound down from the manicured quads on the campus through beautiful neighborhoods with large and opulent houses towards a forgotten part of town. And it was here in the forgotten part of town on the road that a little sports sedan hit a rundown old minivan full of folks on their way to work. The noise it made, the crash it made, was so loud. I jumped up from my couch, I grabbed my cup of coffee, I yelled for my wife, and I ran to the porch. I stayed a safe distance on the opposite side of the road. That sporty sedan was smashed, the van lying on its side. Smoke was beginning to leave in thin wisps from under the hood. Suddenly, like a flash, out of the corner of my eye, I saw my neighbor jumping into action. He wore this morning, like he did every morning, his perennial outfit. He was barefooted and shirtless. On his skin, numerous homemade tattoos from his various stints in prison illustrated his body. And my favorite article of clothing of his, Duke sorority sweatpants, he had picked up on the curb for free when school let out in December. He was thin, and the many years of 
Drug abuse made him look older than he was. But he ran, he ran as quick as he could with reckless abandon to help these neighbors. He ran over glass and through smoke. He wrenched the door of the sedan open and from it pulled a half-dazed law student and set him down safely on the curb. He jumped back into action, pulling out migrant families from this old minivan as they were on their way to work to make money. He ran back into his house. He got glasses and water and blankets. He surrounded them. He took care of them. He gave a report on the scene. He stayed with them until people had come to pick them up. It just goes to show you never know who will be traveling by on the road. And I only saw all this because I maintained a safe distance on the other side of the road. We're greeted today with a familiar story, one we've heard in Sunday school classes and from pulpits, one that we've probably walked by in the stained glass many times without even giving it a second look, a familiar story, the Good Samaritan. Now, I assume most of you recognized it almost as soon as it came off of Lisa's lips, maybe teacher. Teacher. Now, I don't want you to hear this as an innocent word, teacher. You see, when, when he says this to Jesus, the late Candler professor Bill Mallard notes that every time the word teacher is said in the Gospel of Luke to describe Jesus by another person, that this is, is a term of, of derision or a term of contempt, not of, of excitement or, or happiness about having a teacher in their midst. This is not, oh, teacher, could you explain that again? Or, teacher, wh which way is the bathroom? This is more, hey, teach, what do you really have going on? So the lawyer sneers this question to the upstart rabbi from the podunk town of Nazareth. Well, teacher, if you are so smart, what do I have to do to go to heaven? Now notice that the lawyer's question is not about God or about maybe what the communion of saints might look like, but rather, how myself will I gain eternal life? But Jesus, being Jesus, replies simply. He takes a question and answers it with a question. He says, well, what's in the law? What do you read there? As if he's saying, well, you're the lawyer. You went to school for this. What does the law say? And the lawyer, not phased by Jesus's answering of a question with a question, responds with some old, familiar scriptures. He quickly gives two statements, one from Deuteronomy 6.5 and one from Leviticus 19.18, familiar verses for a man well-learned in the law. Well, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. He repeats these scriptures to Jesus almost as readily as we could tell this parable if we were asked to. It's that familiar to him. And Jesus affirms this lawyer's statement and says, well, if you do that, it seems like you've got the right answer. You're going to be fine. But the lawyer persists and asks Jesus, well, then Jesus, if you're so smart, who is my neighbor? Explain it to me. And it is here that we find the story, the familiar story of the Good Samaritan. One that we've heard just as many times from pulpits and Sunday school classes as we have in the secular sphere or on the news screen. 
A familiar story, one that is so familiar that over time we've begun to water it down, to reduce it to be simply about volunteer service or generous giving of time and resources or as a way to point out how the clergy need to be better at their jobs. I hope after this sermon you don't think that that is the case. But Jesus is trying to push us. He's trying to push us to find the elemental parts of this familiar story. Why is he using a story to teach this lawyer? Why is he using a story to teach us? You see, the road from Jerusalem to Jericho was a rough one. You descend from a height as high as Mount Pisgah here behind us to well below sea level in the span of 18 miles. It's a rough road, one not to be traveled on alone. It's a road where travelers and traders traversed in order to make their living, but bandits and robbers hid out there to make their living as well. And so we find in this story a weary traveler, one who was robbed, stripped, beaten, and left for dead, lying in the ditch, waiting for someone to come and save them. We know the story. We like to think of ourselves as someone that would have passed by and helped this person. We like to put ourselves as either the innkeeper or the Samaritan or someone else who would have said, oh, look at this person down on their luck. Let me reach out my hand. We're too uncomfortable to be the person laying in the ditch. But if you would indulge me, imagine yourself as that person, stripped and beaten, half alive, head pounding, eyes half open, laying in the ditch, waiting for someone to come and help you. You're laying there, the light slowly beginning to fade, but you see the familiar swish of robes coming down the road, the robes of a priest. Your heart inside your broken body soars. You will be saved. But the priest stays at a safe distance on the other side of the road. And usually we say here, what a hypocrite, what a false prophet, someone who doesn't understand the role of the job But let's not be too hard on the priest. Because in that moment, he made a decision like most of us do. He pulled up to a stoplight. Maybe he locked his doors. He left his window rolled up. You can almost see the wheels turning in the priest's head. Well, I'm I'm simply, I'm too busy. I have a sermon to write. I'm actually on my way to the hospital. There are folks in my community that need saving and needed to be visited. And and besides, if if I touch a dead body or a half-dead body... I'll be ritually unclean, and then I can't even serve my own congregation. So I have to ask myself, what's more important, saving the souls of my congregation or saving this one man? And he maintains his safe distance and walks on. Next, a Levite passes by. A Levite would have been a word for a very involved layperson. Someone that served on all the committees. Perhaps they were on the altar guild. Maybe they liked to cook the food for every community event. They had the heart of a servant. You use the little strength you have left to look up from your space in the ditch and you see the Levite coming. You're excited knowing their servant's heart. But the Levite has a choice to make too. Because if they don't hurry down the road to the temple, who will have time to prepare the altar for worship and if they don't, if they stop now, they'll lose their table at the wel- their spot at the welcome table. They like to serve there every week, and plus, that's what God's work is. It's there. It's on the way. Or maybe they really want to help, but they're just too far behind, and they'll give their thoughts and prayers instead. 
So you lie there in the ditch. Light slowly fading, and finally down the road, you catch a glimpse. A glimpse of your worst nightmare. A Samaritan. You see, at the time, a Samaritan would have been a dirty word. The lawyer can't even say Samaritan at the end when Jesus says, well, who acted as the neighbor? He just says the one that showed pity. Samaritan wouldn't even pass over his lips. Because at the time, Samaritans were religious interlopers. They claimed to believe in the same God as the Jews, but they believed in a different creed. They aligned themselves with the Romans. They were from a different part of town across the tracks. They looked different. And just two chapters earlier, they rejected Jesus even stepping foot into their town. Samaritans would have not been who you wanted to see as you lie in the ditch. But I mean... You could substitute the word Samaritan for anything. I mean, you could easily say, well, there was a Muslim coming down the road or a Hindu or an atheist or an immigrant or an addict or someone formerly incarcerated or the mentally ill. The divisions of this world make it such that we would rather die than be saved by the likes of a Samaritan. We hope that they too will keep their distance. The other side of us up They put us up in the nicest hotel and give us two days' worth of wages and make sure we're cared for. Often when we read this story or we hear it told, we put ourselves as the Samaritan or the innkeeper or the traveler, the one who would surely show love to their neighbor. We never want to be seen as too busy to help, too busy to roll down the window, too busy to stop and check on someone who looks half dead. But if we were lying in the ditch half-dead, broken, humiliated, refused by the people we knew and loved? Would we accept help and love and generosity from a neighbor that we have so long despised, neglected, and refused because of how they look, how they live, or how they believe? Professor Amy Jill Levine says it this way, if there is anyone from any group about whom we'd rather die than acknowledge their help, or even more, Is there any group whose members might rather die than help us? If we can identify that, if we can identify them, Levine argues, then you can identify precisely who Jesus is referring to when he says neighbor. You see, the Savior in this story is not us. And the neighbors in this story are not the people in our sphere that we keep around us for convenience sake. Often we're the passerby in the story, the folks in a rush to go do the good work of God somewhere else. And more often than not, we are the people lying in the ditch. We have looked around for everything and everyone to come help us out of the ditch. We've looked to friends, we've looked to institutions, we've looked to places, and they've all crossed to the other side of the road. And then, to our surprise, A scruffy, dirty, smelly, homeless man from a small town like Nazareth who is talking out loud about some new way of life, who's constantly on the outs with the religious institutions, approaches, stoops down to our level, and pays a price so generous, a price so extravagant that it surpasses all our understanding. Well, Jesus concludes his parable. He concludes his parable, and you can hear the hush of the crowd that had gathered around. You can see 
The look on the well-educated lawyer's face as he looks at this upstart from Nazareth. You can almost hear him thinking out loud, surely you cannot be serious. There's no way that you can read the law in such a way that even the Samaritans are neighbors. Surely you don't interpret familiar scriptures to mean that the people who we don't even like not only deserve help, but give help generously? Surely you don't see these old, familiar scriptures as holding new meaning for us. But Jesus doesn't try to explain the parable. He doesn't try to show where he got this idea from. Instead, he looks into the face of the lawyer and into the faces of all of us and emphatically says, go and do likewise. Because you see, familiar stories sometimes begin to lose their meaning after they've been heard over and over and over again. Like a song whose words we know very well, the little twists and turns and intricacies of the chorus and the inst instrumentation begin to just phase away into the background noise of our everyday lives. But every once in a while, every once in a while, we're surprised by the familiar. New little bits of the story begin to unravel and to reveal themselves over time. Wendell Berry says that telling a story is like reaching into a granary full of wheat, drawing out a handful, because there's always more to tell than can be told. You see, I was surprised by this familiar story, this familiar piece of scripture. I was surprised by the speed in which the lawyer responds with scripture to answer Jesus' question. You see, this answer would have been a familiar one to him. He probably heard it throughout his life. He learned it as a boy. He learned it as a teenager. He went to school for it. He knew how to inherit eternal life. He must have said it a hundred times as an answer. He knew that God required of him and of others. He knew that God wanted the love of neighbor and of God's self with the entirety of our being. And yet, when the lawyer answers Jesus' question, knowing he's given the right answer, He's spoken the familiar words out of his mouth. He was surprised when Jesus took those familiar words and made them so real. Robert Funk describes the exchange this way. Jesus, in effect, is saying to the lawyer, if you knew what love means, you would have not asked the question. I asked, how do you read the law? And you answered me with the right words. Now I ask whether you understand the words, and I will know your answer by the way you live your life. When we hear this familiar story, my prayer is that it leaps off the page, that when we are asked about our faith, about our life, about our neighbor, we would not answer with the familiar platitudes or familiar answers, but that we would show with our lives what it means to love God and love neighbor, that we would answer Jesus' call to go and do likewise. May it be so.